try it at home. Uh, if you want to turn with me, folks, to Luke chapter 7. Chapter 7 is really all about compassion. Uh, in chapter 7, we meet four very different people, uh, each of them with very different needs. And it's all very contrasting. Uh, we have a sick servant of a Roman centurion. The focus isn't really so much on the sick servant, but on the centurion. And we see how God responds to people with humility. We have an only son of a poor widow who, who's in a coffin. And again, it's really how he deals with the woman and he reaches out in compassion to someone who is hurting. With John the Baptist, a godly man who's unsure in his faith. Are you the guy? Are you the one I've been talking about all this time? He's struggling. He's hesitant. And then we have a sinful woman who comes to Christ in repentance. And we see Christ responding to someone with a heavy heart. Now, before I do that, I have a mental exercise for you, okay? So I want you to imagine that uh, this virus that they're talking about, right, it sweeps in, takes over the world, but thank goodness you're here. You've come up with the cure. They put you in charge of a little outpost out here in Lockery's, but what happens is, unfortunately, there's a queue left of five people who are longing to get this uh, inoculation, but you've only got one portion left. You've only got one jab left. You can only save one of these five. There's more coming, but I'll not get to them in time. You've, you've, you have to make a choice. Who are you going to save? Here's the candidates. A rich businessman. We have a baby. We have a 21-year-old woman, a doctor, and a student. In your head, who do you choose? That's only the information I'm giving you. You're getting no more information than that. Who would you save? Okay. Let me give you now a little bit more information and see if it changes your mind. Okay, so this businessman, he funds hospital research. He's generous. He, he's a philanthropist. Would you save him now? Or save him still? The baby lives in an orphanage, but somehow, okay, let's not pull the string too hard, has got to you from the orphanage, wanting the job. This young woman is spoiled, lazy. The doctor is a top surgeon. The student studies biochemistry. Who do you save? Based on this information alone, who do you save? Okay, now let me give you a, a third uh, bit of information about this, these people. The rich businessman cheats on his wife, but he does get, still give a lot to charity. The baby has some other terminal diseases. The young woman is pregnant. If you save her, you can save the baby as well. The doctor is incompetent, is about to get sacked. And the student will go on to develop future cures. Who do you save? Now, I'm not going to go through it all. But out of interest, who changed their mind the more information that they got? Okay, most people. Okay. You see... It's a, I, I, I've used that a couple of times down the past. I think I used it here like six years ago whenever Snack was on or Jump or whatever it was called was, was on. But um, maybe some of you in the church saw what I was doing. 
you could see it maybe from a mile off, that I was pushing you to choose someone to save based on merit. Who deserves to be saved? Who would contribute the most? Who, and this idea of, well, <clears throat> the moral choice is the one who can contribute the most uh, by being saved, who has earned it the most, who, can, who deserves to be saved. It's always hard to know because the truth is it's impossible to look at people and know everything about them. It's hard to know motives. It's hard to know reasons. It's hard to know the details. But God does. So does he work according to merit? Does he work according to who deserves it? It's interesting. Let's go back to the list of four people. Who deserves to be saved? Who deserves to see Christ work in their lives? Who doesn't deserve to see God work? Because what I want to show you this morning is, of course, that Christ is not limited to saving just one, but is able to save all. But his power is not limited. His power is not finite. But of course, he doesn't work based on our merits. But he works according to who he is. He works in compassion. The word compassion doesn't measure, it ministers. It doesn't look at merit, it simply sees the need. We get the word compassion 12 times in the New Testament, nine of which is used as a reason for Christ to heal. He doesn't do it because the person deserved it or the person had earned it. He did it because he had compassion on that person. God works in these moments because he cares deeply about his people. He longs to lift burdens. That's who he is. He is a lifter of burdens. And so here we see Christ responding in compassion to four people in need. Now, we'll not go get all four done this morning. I'm, I'm going to aim for three. We'll see how we go, though. So, Luke chapter 7. After he, Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us, our synagogue. Hmm. I, I find Roman centurions really, really interesting. Now, I know most of us know they, they were kind of put in charge of maybe 80 to 100, maybe 110 men. It's where we get the word century. We get centurion, 100. But as a centurion, you're paid doubled. So when you, when you went from legionnaire to centurion, your, your pay at least doubled. There, there's one record of someone's salary going over 10 times what he had as a legionnaire. It was a prestigious rule. But here's why I think centurions are really interesting. Go through the Bible. Go through the New Testament. And every time it mentions a Roman centurion, they are never seen in a negative light. Think about it. Think through the centurions. They are always seen positively, either being full of faith or, or being interested or being kind. I find it interesting how the New Testament writers portray these enemies of Israel, these invaders who came in. And we were talking about Levi last week about how the people hated him because he sided with these people. And yet the centurions are seen in positive lights. But notice, the, the centurion, he sends the leaders, look, could you get Jesus to come and heal my servant? I value. 
but the leaders kind of take on this kind of uh, logic of their own right. Because listen to what they say. They say, Jesus, heal the servant because, because he deserves it. He's worthy. The centurion is worth it. Do this for him. They have this wrong idea of the relationship between them and God. They have a typical view, though. It is a typical, it's a common view. If you were to ask, well, why should God answer my friend's prayer? You say, well, my friend deserves it. He prays. He goes to church. He even puts money in the box. He deserves God to answer. He deserves things to happen. Or, or then I say, well, look, you know, she, she, does, she loves the Lord. She's a godly woman. She, she prays every day. She never misses a service. She deserves God to work. She deserves her prayers to be answered. And so these Jewish people are saying, uh, what, what they're saying about the centurion is, he deserves God's favor. He has earned the right for this thing to happen. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't teach that. Romans 3 says that we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. Romans 9 says that it does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Ephesians 2 says that we are made alive with Christ even when we're dead in our trespasses. It is by grace that we have been saved. But these Jewish people are trying to convince Jesus. They're trying to move the hand of God by putting forward this man's worth. He loves our nation. Jesus, he's built the synagogue. Which in truth is the same way of saying, Jesus, look, you and I both know that some people really don't deserve you to move in their lives. But if anyone does, this guy does. He's earned the right. He's done good things. And so Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Okay, so this is really interesting. Now, the people who are trying to get Jesus to move by saying, look, he is worthy, but now the centurion himself is saying, look, no, I'm not. I'm not. I don't know what they're telling you, Jesus, but I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. Verse 7, therefore, I did not presume to come to you, just but say the word. Let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I said to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So here's what we read, and it just blows Jesus' mind. He's staggered, he's stunned, he stops and marvels. That's what that word means. He is staggered. What made him marvel? I believe that the centurion understood the authority of God. This guy ran the local area. He is a centurion. He could have demanded an audience with Jesus. He could have dispatched his soldiers and says, you grab him and if he comes kicking and screaming, so be it, you bring him here in front of me. He will answer to me. He will obey me. I will tell him to heal my servant. Make no mistake, this centurion runs the town. It's his town. He's the centurion. He runs the barracks. He is the Roman voice there and Rome controls Israel. It's his house. It's his town. 
And yet Jesus marvels at his humility because he says, look, I understand that I can bark orders. I can bark orders at people and I can make people run, skip and jump, whatever I want. But I understand that I'm not worthy to have you in my house. Now, that's huge because the Romans took chain of command very seriously. In 30 BC, Rome was a republic. It was quite democratic, but in 30 BC, things changed. Caesar, the first one, Caesar Augustus, took absolute total control. He became an emperor and went from a republic to an empire. More than ever, what he said went. And so he distributed that authority to his armies, to his centurions. And so when a centurion gave a command, it was based on the authority of Caesar himself. So if a centurion told you to do something, that's like Caesar telling you to do something. So for you to disobey your centurion was to disobey Caesar, and they took that very seriously. This centurion speaks, and he expects people to respond as if it was Caesar himself to speak. And yet he says, but Jesus, I am unworthy to have you in my home. Just say the word. Saying the word is enough. Because I know that when I speak, I speak with an authority that is not my own, but comes from above. But Jesus, I know that the authority that you speak with comes from above. And your authority is greater than the authority that I have. And that's why Jesus marvels. Some Christians, they, they want to run after emotions that God doesn't really manifest himself, that, that, that the Spirit isn't in a meeting unless there's goosebumps down your back or if you get shivers or if the hair stands up. Uh, and it's all about this kind of experience in a, in a service. All right? And, and if there's tears flowing and you feel yourself, oh, that was a good service. And there's some churches that will say even the gospel is empty without signs and wonders around it. They say we need revelation. We need visitation. But here in Scripture is a centurion who says, no, I don't need the visitation. All I need is the Word. All I need is the Word of God. And what this interaction teaches me is that what delights God most is when we realize and appreciate the authority of God and the power of His Word. waiting for an amen on that one, but okay, never mind. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples had a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Okay, so we're about 25 miles down the road now from Capernaum. Geographically, we're on the road towards Nazareth, um, but Jesus stops in on Nain. It's, um, they've done a couple of days' journey. Uh, I'm sure it's hot in the Middle Eastern sun, so they, they pull in for a break. But as they're coming into the city gate, there's a big crowd with Jesus, but there's a big crowd coming out, so there's a bit of congestion. There's two big crowds, and they're passing each other, and they get intermingled, and they combine into one huge crowd in this part of the town. And when the Lord saw her, the widow, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the bier and the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. 
And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Wow. Okay, now, obvious wow moment there is the fact that this man who was dead is now alive again, but there is, uh, which is a miracle in itself. But notice that with the centurion's servant, he speaks from a distance. He doesn't have to go there. He doesn't have to go to, to heal someone. He can speak the word, such as the power and the authority of God's word. But here he does something unnecessary, and he does something that's quite highly offensive. He touches the, the wooden frame that the body is being uh, uh, carried on. So if you imagine the, 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 the man's body is being wrapped up, and there's probably the, the perfume and the senses on it, and he's being carried out on like a wooden plank, um, and that's the buyer, and you've got the pole bearers then carrying this buyer out, and he touches this, this frame. That's a defiling act. It would have made Christ unclean. But again, like what we saw whenever he healed the leper by reaching out and touching the leper's face, Jesus shows that when he comes into contact with the things that are unclean, he does not become unclean. Rather, he makes the unclean clean. He makes what is not whole to be whole. And such is his holiness, such is his righteousness, that he makes what is unclean and unfit and unworthy for God to be clean and to be worthy and to be precious. So here's, here's a woman. What, what a horrible situation she's in. She has no husband. She has no source of income. Uh, and now she has no son. She has no protection. She has no provision at all. The men in her life who are supposed to provide for her are gone. She has nothing. She has no one. Her future is that of a beggar on the street. And this... When her husband died, the son would have taken up the mantle, but now he's gone. It's a horrible, horrible situation, and Jesus has compassion on her. It's not because she deserved it, but because his heart broke for her. And he says to her, do not weep. Now, before that, we have that compassion. His heart's going out. It's a figure of way saying he felt it in his gut. His heart just was exploding in anguish and pain for her. And it's one of the things that Matthew and Luke keep pointing out to us, keeps pointing out to us, that he's filled with compassion. And so what does he do? He speaks life into the body of her son. Now, verse 16 says that the response was fear. Yeah, I bet it was fear. Could you imagine being lost in a pit of despair and then the lad jumps up and wants to go play football with his mates? That, uh, that's scary. I'll tell you a quick story. Ruth and I were married... Uh, just over a year. And we had a dog uh, that Ruth had brought. It was her family pet from home uh, called Chance. Now, Chance, uh, we didn't really know how old Chance was. He was about 12 for about six years in a row. Um, so we had no idea how old he is. But about a year in, he, he got really sick. And so uh, I took him to the vets. And, and long story short, we were told, look, you're going to have to put him down. And so I go, oh, great, I'm, I've married Ruth a year and I've killed her dog. Here we go, this is going to be. And so I rang Ruth from the vets, and then I went in, and I was holding chances as they, as they injected him. It was peaceful. It only lasted a few seconds. And then they said, look, we can sort out the remains. We can sort out everything else. Just take the collar off. And when I did, there, there was some trapped air in Chance's lungs. 
And so whenever I started moving around the throat, it opened up the airway and the air from the lungs escaped, coming past the vocal cords. And so chants went, <laughs> Ghost dog, he's coming, he blames me, he blames me. Now, I immediately realized what happened, but for that split second, I was thinking, ghost dog. But that's, it was scary, because it's dead. It's not supposed to move. It's not supposed to make sounds. So imagine instead of a pet, a son. Imagine instead of just some air escaping, him sitting up and talking and moving. Smiling. How much more frightened would you be in that instant? How much more terrified would you be? Now, what we have here is something that's really, really interesting because I mentioned that there's a crowd coming into the town and there's one going out of the town. You've got two very different crowds. One is excited, happy, kind of in party mode. Yeah, we're following Jesus. We're seeing signs. We're seeing wonders. Woo, this is exciting. I've given up everything because I want to follow this guy. I want to see what he's doing next. I want to hear what he has to say. And yet they're meeting this other crowd and and they are heavy and they are sad and, and they're kind of mingling together. You've got two crowds. You've got a story centering around two sons. One son who lived and was destined to die, and you have another son who died and was destined to live. And by that authority, the Son of God speaks to this dead son and says, get up, get up, and there is a restoration of life. Now, forgive me if I get a wee bit pedantic here, but it is kind of important in the bigger picture. So often we'll say this is a resurrection and that there was the resurrection of Lazarus. And in one sense, it's not really that big a deal using that language, but it's not a resurrection. Do not call it a resurrection. Uh, I'm pulling on a technicality, but I think it's important. Just follow me and follow my logic. It's a restoration of life. He was dead, and he was given back the life that he had. But the boy will die again in the same way that Lazarus, who was restored out of the grave, went on to die again. It's an old life, an old, finite, temporary life restored. It's not a new life imparted. Jesus, uh, the Bible says, is the first fruits of the resurrection, all right? Do you remember reading that in 1 Corinthians? Uh, 15, the first fruits of the resurrection. And here's what that means. It means that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose from the dead with a glorified body. It wasn't the same that he had before. And because things started to change with Christ then, and he had this glorified body, it wasn't an old life restored. It was a new life imparted by the Father. So I hope you understand that, that it's a glorified body that Christ had. Paul says our bodies risen will be like Christ's body risen, and they will be bodies that are fit for heaven in a way that our bodies right now are not fit for heaven. He's the first fruits. He's the prototype. That's resurrection. A body fit for heaven. But this boy had a life restored. 
He does not have a glorified body. It's a restoration. He will die again. It's not to take away of how awesome and how incredible this miracle is, but I think by assigning the word resurrection to it, I think we diminish what resurrection really means and the power of the resurrection, and we can confuse people by that, which is why I'm, I'm being a wee bit pedantic with it. Lazarus, when he was called forward from the grave, I'm not going to fall out with anyone if you say, look, I'm, I call it a resurrection. Fine. But technically it's not. Because a resurrection demands a glorified body. And with that in mind, this miracle is a preview of coming attractions. It points to the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It points to the promise that God can provide a glorified body for us. Because if he can do this, then he can do the next bit. In the same way that the Savior speaks life into this boy's corpse and takes one who is dead and gives him life, and then he delivers him into the safe and grateful arms of a, of a parent, of his mother, so too our Savior, so too our Savior who has delivered us from the penalty and the death of sin into new life in him will come again one day and hand us over in resurrected, glorified bodies to our Father who will gladly receive us. And in the words of the prodigal son, or the father of the prodigal son, and look, 15 says, my son who was dead is now alive. That's resurrection. First Thessalonians 4, the, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall be ever with the Lord. Amen. So I hope you see this compassion of Christ. Yes, he restores a life. What an amazing display of power that Christ has. Yet he offers hope to absolutely everyone in this twofold crowd, this mega crowd that is gathered around him. He is a savior who is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who said to Martha before he rose Lazarus from the grave, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the promise of the resurrection, but it is not a promise of restoration of life. And before I start ranting and raving about some of the heresy that's coming out of some churches at the minute about resurrection and raising people from the dead, that's why this is important. That's why we need to be pedantic. The, res the promises of resurrection, the promises for that is for a redeemed, glorified body fit for heaven. But we are not promised a restoration of life. Okay, let's move on. The disciples of John then reported these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, we know from the other gospel accounts that John's in prison when he says this. Why is he in prison? Because John doesn't care who, offend, who is offended by his sermons. He doesn't care. He, he, he doesn't mind because he preached a sermon one day to Herod uh, Antipas, 
uh, who had, uh, and he just really got on his case. Uh, he stole the wife of his brother, uh, even though he was already married, and he's having adultery. And so John the Baptist calls him out on that. And so he, could you imagine calling out our politicians and calling people like, you're this and you're that. And of course, then it lands John the Baptist in prison. It's going to cost him his life eventually. So what's up with the question? Is John the Baptist doubting his faith? Perhaps. We're halfway through Christ's earthly ministry at this point. I know we've only felt like we've really started going through Luke, but we're already 18 months in timeline-wise. But there's been no big revival. There's been no coming kingdom. The Romans are still in charge. The Pharisees are still dictating terms. There's been, where's the coming kingdom, Jesus? Where's all the stuff that you said was coming, Jesus? And John the Baptist, he says, listen, I'm taking it to Herod. I'm sticking it to the man. Jesus, why are you avoiding the man? Why are you spending all this time up in Galilee and Capernaum? Where's the fight, Jesus? Where's the revolution? Where's, where's the kingdom, Jesus? Are you the guy? After all, Jesus had preached a sermon. It was one of the first sermons he preached after he, the temptation. And he says, he speaks about opening prison doors and setting captives free. Yet John the Baptist is in jail. It's not happening for him. All these promises, all these things that Jesus said was going to happen, it's not happening for him. So, so Jesus, are you the guy? Because it's not getting any better. Where, where are these promises going to come? I was going through this this week and I thought, isn't it really sad that the Jewish leaders were more than happy to petition for the centurion, but they never came petitioning for John the Baptist? Things are getting worse for John the Baptist. He's feeling isolated. He's feeling alone. So he asked the question, are you the guy? Are you the one? Because I've told people you're the one. You know, it's not uncommon for great men of God to have questions. It's not uncommon for great men of faith who have great faith to still have big questions. Not knowing necessarily who they always are in God. Moses had his doubts. Jeremiah had his doubts. He said, I quit the ministry. I'm walking away. I'm not going to speak anymore in your name. Elijah said, Lord, you can kill me now. I just want to drop off the face of the earth. I'm done with this. Because this isn't what I signed up for. It's not uncommon. In fact, I, I know I've offended people, especially parents, whenever I was involved in youth work. They would uh, speak to me after a service or ring me during the week and say, you know, uh, my teenager is asking questions. Come round and make them stop. Fix it. I was like, there's nothing to fix. This is good. I'm glad they're asking questions. And that really kind of offended them. It was like, no, I want blind obedience and blind trust. No, I don't. You see, I'm happy that they're asking tough questions. I'm glad that people ask and, and are seeking for answers because it means that they're thinking about their faith, that they're taking ownership of it. They're making sure that their roots go down deep. And asking questions means that they're looking for answers. And I believe that the answers are there. I may not know all the answers, but I know that so many of those answers are there to be known. Now, there is a difference between having questions and looking for answers and trying to grow in your faith and unbelief. 
unbelief is, is a refusal to seek out any answers. They'll say, well, uh, uh, science, uh, dinosaurs, uh, I don't believe in God anymore. I says, no, but there are answers. We can't explain that. We can't talk about that. We can't reason together and we can't explain. I don't want to know. That's unbelief. But doubt is not a sign that someone is feeling. It's a sign that they are thinking. And as far as I'm concerned, all thinkers are welcome. We need more thinkers in the faith. It gives us solid foundations. It gives us ownership. And I believe our God stands up to the questions. I'm not scared of the questions. I may not know the answer, but I know that God stands up to the questions. So don't back away from them. But you'll notice how Jesus deals with the question, the biggest question of our faith, are you the one? You'll know why Luke includes this resurrection just before now as we close. Because these men come and ask the question in verse 21. And in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. Jesus effectively says, am I the one? Here, hold my coffee. And he just goes about and he does these miracles and says, okay, now go back and tell John. Now go back and tell John what you've seen and tell him Isaiah 35. Tell him Isaiah 35 because that's where these verses come from. Uh, And tell him I fit the bill. The blind can see, the deaf can hear, and the dead can live. And that's what Luke's been showing us over these different things. The dead, uh, the, the blind, the sick. Jesus has power over them. He has compassion on those near them. So go back and tell John, this may not be how he thought it would go. This may not be how he thought his life would look like. But that does not mean I'm not the guy. It just means that there's more to the story that he doesn't see. I'm out of time here this morning, but let me finish this thought. There's so much more to the text, but let me just uh, finish with this because I've been thinking a lot about this. As we grow in our Christian faith, the longer that we are saved... So often there can be a a temptation or a drifting towards doubting God, being offended by him. I have met people who have become so disappointed in Jesus over time. They get so excited whenever they first get saved. They're they're buzzing and they're excited and they're like, yes, I'm saved. And and this is going to happen. And this is going to happen. My my parents are going to get saved. My family's going to get saved. My wife's going to get saved. My husband's going to get saved. It's going to happen. And it's brilliant. And and, and they geek out on on the whole thing. And they're so psyched and it's great. And then a few weeks turn into a few months, turns into a few years. And as time goes by and routines take over, sometimes that excitement fades. Usually, that excitement fades. Which is why David said in the Psalms, return unto me the joy of thy salvation. Get me back to that place. Get me back to that place where I was so excited. Because what happens is, what we thought we were going to get whenever we got saved isn't necessarily the reality of where we are right now. We were sure that the disease that we have would be healed, but it didn't get healed. In fact, it got worse. We thought our kids would turn out a wee bit differently, but this is how they are. We thought, sure, that certain things would happen and good things would happen, the promotion would happen. Maybe it was because that's what we just expected or assumed, or it's because what the preacher told us that night that we got saved, and we thought it was all going to happen, and it isn't happening. And then over time, there's this tendency and temptation to become offended by Christ, disappointed in him. This isn't what I signed up for. And I've seen pastors walk away from churches because they were disappointed in God. Jesus, I signed up for a revival. 
I, I, I was going to be the next big thing. I was going to like, turn this church around. So why am I pastoring a church that's getting smaller? Jesus, I'm so disappointed. You abandoned me first, so I'm going to leave you. But let's be clear, Jesus, you left me first. I'm so disappointed in what you have done or what you've not done. Now, let me just frame this up for you as we finish. Again, this is not uncommon. This is not unusual. So if you're feeling iffy or, or if you know somebody that is, please don't clobber them with the gospel gun and say that they're a wretched sinner or, or anything like that. Be patient with them, please. Please show compassion. Show tenderness. And if they're struggling, that's okay. Get in the trenches with them. Struggle with them. Find out what they're struggling with. Help them find good answers. If it's an intellectual problem, go find good, solid, intellectual answers that are rooted in Scripture. The easiest thing to do as, as Christians, the easiest thing for us to do is to get locked in to the things that we thought Jesus would do but isn't doing, and we ignore the things that he is doing. And so Jesus firmly and lovingly tells John, I am busy doing many things. Keep trusting me. Don't focus on what you thought was going to happen. Look at what is happening. There is power and there is life. So trust in me. I am he. I am the one. Okay, we're going to finish now, folks. But listen, I, 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 I don't know who here is struggling, but we all have struggles. There are all times when we say, you know, I'd love to know the answer to this. I'd love to know why. I'd love to know this. I'd love, I'd love to know. The temptation is to be disappointed with who God is. The temptation is to think, this isn't what I signed up for. I was expecting something completely different. Keep trusting in him. If it's intellectual questions, the answers, I, I believe, are there. If it's about thinking, well, I thought it was going to be a different, that doesn't mean God isn't there. It doesn't mean that God isn't working. It doesn't mean that he, he's lost compassion. There's just more to the story that you can't see. There's more happening than you're aware of. Keep trusting in him. Talk to people around you that, about your struggles. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't let those doubts become unbelief, but rather carry one another's burdens. Carry them to Christ. And you will find that he is still the one that he said he was. He's still the one who, who, who can restore and heal and save and forgive. He's still that one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. And we're sorry for making you out to be something that you're not or someone that you're not. And we hold on to different uh, manipulations of a promise or, or we just make up things that we think you should be doing or think it should, things should work a certain way. Lord, we get ahead of ourselves and for that we're sorry. But Lord, like that centurion who knew the power and the authority of your word, Lord, we want to anchor ourselves in who you are. We want to anchor ourselves in who you really are. And even if we don't always understand why things are happening the way they're happening, Lord, we, we believe and we affirm and we testify this morning that while we don't know what's happening, we 
trust in you. We look to you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us in that. And Lord, we pray that those around us would support us as a church, as a family. We can get around one another. But Lord, we pray that in this, Lord, we would always know this wonderful truth that you are the one that we've been searching for, the one that we've been looking for, the one that we've been needing all this time. So Lord, we pray that you'd help us be anchored in you. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, you are our God. Amen. Folks, I'm going to ask.